Section 14 of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The South Pole by Roald Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section 14, Volume 1, Chapter 6. Depot Journeys, Part 2. February 24th began badly. A strong wind from the southeast, with thick driving snow. We could see nothing, and had to steer our course by compass. It was bitter going against the wind, although the temperature was no worse than minus 0 0.4 degrees Fahrenheit. We went all day without seeing any mark. The snow stopped falling about noon, and at three o'clock it cleared. As we were looking about for a place to pitch the tents, we caught sight of one of our flags. When we reached it, we found it was flag number five. All our bamboos were numbered, so we knew the exact position of the flag number five was forty-four and a half miles from Fremheim. This agreed with the distance recorded, forty-four miles. The next day was calm and clear and the temperature began to descend, minus thirteen degrees Fahrenheit. But in spite of this lower temperature, the air felt considerably milder, as it was quite still. We followed marks and fish the whole way, and at the end of our day's journey we had covered eighteen miles, a good distance for heavy going. We then had a couple of days of bitter cold with fog, so that we did not see much of our surroundings. We followed the fish and the marks most of the way. We had already begun to find the fish useful as extra food. The dogs took it greedily. The forerunner had to take up each fish and throw it on one side. Then one of the drivers went out, took it up, and put it on his sledge. If the dogs had come upon the fish standing in the snow, we should have soon had fierce fights. Even now, before we reached the depot in 80 degrees south, the dogs began to show signs of exhaustion, probably as a result of the cold weather, minus 16.6 .6 degrees Fahrenheit, and the hard work. They were stiff in the legs in the morning, and difficult to set going. On February 27th, at 10.30 a.m., we reached the depot in 80 degrees south. The depot was standing as we had left it, and no snowdrifts had formed about it, from which we concluded that the weather conditions had been quiet. The snow, which we had found very loose when we were there before, was now hardened by the cold. We were lucky with the sun, and got the position of the depot accurately determined. On our way across these endless plains, where no landmarks of any kind are to be found, we had repeatedly thought of a means of making our depots, so that we might be perfectly sure of finding them again. Our fight for the pole was entirely dependent on this autumn work, in laying down large supplies of provisions as far to the south as possible, in such a way that we could be certain of finding them again. If we missed them, the battle would probably be lost. As I have said, we had discussed the question thoroughly, and came to the conclusion that we should have to try to mark our depots at right angles to the route, in an east and west direction instead of a line with the route north and south. 
These marks along the line of the route may easily be missed in fog, if they are not close enough together, and if one thus gets out of the line, there is a danger of not picking it up again. According to this new arrangement, we therefore marked this depot in eighty degrees south, with high bamboo poles carrying black flags. We used twenty of these, ten on each side of the depot. Between each two flags there was a distance of 984 yards, 900 metres, so that the distance marked on each side of the depot was five and a half miles, nine kilometres. Each bamboo was marked with a number, so that we should always be able to tell from this number on which side the depot lay and how far off. This method was entirely new and untried, but proved afterwards to work with absolute certainty. Our compasses and sledge-meters had, of course, been carefully adjusted at the station, and we knew that we could rely on them. Having put this in order, we continued our journey on the following day. The temperature fell steadily as we went inland. If it continued in this way, it would be cold before one got to the pole. The surface remained as before, flat and even. We ourselves had a feeling that we were ascending, but, as the future will show, this was only imagination. We had had no troubles with fissures, and it almost looked as if we should avoid them altogether, since, of course, it might be supposed that the part of the barrier nearest the edge would be the most fissured, and we had already left that behind us. South of eighty degrees, we found the going easier, but the dogs were now beginning to be stiff and sore-footed, and it was hard work to get them started in the morning. The sore feet I am speaking of here are not nearly so bad as those the dogs are liable to on the sea ice of the Arctic regions. What caused sore feet on this journey was the stretches of snow-crust we had to cross. It was not strong enough to bear the dogs, and they broke through and cut their paws. Sore feet were also caused by the snow caking and sticking between the toes. But the dog that has to travel on sea ice in spring and summer is exposed to worse things. The sharp ice cuts the paws and the salt gets in. To prevent this kind of sore feet, one is almost obliged to put socks on the dogs. With the kind of foot trouble our dogs experienced, it is not necessary to take any such precautions. As a result of the long sea voyage, their feet had become unusually tender and could not stand much. On our spring journey we noticed no sore-footedness, in spite of the conditions being worse rather than better. Probably their feet had got into condition in the course of the winter. On March 3rd we reached 81 degrees south. The temperature was then minus 45.4 degrees Fahrenheit, and it did not feel pleasant. The change had come too rapidly. This could be seen in both men and dogs. We pitched our camp at three in the afternoon and went straight into the tents. The following day was employed in building and marking the depot. That night was the coldest we observed on the trip, as the temperature was minus 49 degrees Fahrenheit when we turned out in the morning. If one compares the conditions of temperature in the Arctic and Antarctic regions, it will be seen that this temperature is an exceptionally low one. The beginning of March corresponds, of course, to the beginning of September in the Northern Hemisphere, a time of year when summer still prevails. 
we were astonished to find this low temperature while summer ought still to have lasted, especially when I remembered the moderate temperatures Shackleton had observed on his southern sledge journey. The idea at once occurred to me of the existence of a local pole of maximum cold, extending over the central portion of the Ross barrier. A comparison with the observations recorded at Captain Scott's station in McMurdo Sound might to some extent explain this. In order to establish it completely, one would require to have information about the conditions in King Edward Land as well. The observations Dr. Mawson is now engaged upon in Adele Land, and on the barrier farther west, will contribute much to the elucidation of this question. In 81 degrees south we lay down a depot, consisting of 14 cases of dogs pemmican, 1,234 pounds. For marking this depot, we had no bamboo poles, so there was nothing to be done but to break up some cases and use the pieces as marks. This was, at any rate, better than nothing. Personally, I considered these pieces of wood, two feet high, good enough, considering the amount of precipitation I had remarked since our arrival in these regions. The precipitation we had observed was very slight, considering the time of year, spring and summer. If, then, the snowfall was so inconsiderable at this time of the year, and along the edge of the barrier, what might it not be in autumn and winter in the interior? As I have said, something was better than nothing, and Jarland, Hassel, and Stubbard, who were to return to Lindstrom's flesh-pots on the following day, were given up the task of setting up these marks. As with the former depot, this one was marked for nine kilometres on each side, from east to west, so that we might know where the depot was, in case we should come upon one of these marks in a fog. All those on the east were marked with a little cut of an axe. I must confess they looked insignificant, these little bits of wood that were soon lost to sight on the boundless plain, and the idea that they held the key of the castle where the fair one slept made me smile. They looked altogether too inconsiderable for such an honour. Meanwhile, we others, who were to go on to the south, took it easy. The rest was good for the dogs especially, that the cold prevented their enjoying it as they should have done. At eight o'clock next morning we parted company with the three who went north. I had to send home one of my dogs, Odin, who had got an ugly raw paw. I was using Greenland harness on him, and I went on with five dogs. These were very thin and apparently worn out but in any case we had to reach 82 degrees south before we gave up. I had had some hope that we might have got to 83 degrees, but it began to look as if we had a poor chance of that. After 81 degrees south, the barrier began to take on a slightly different appearance. Instead of the absolutely flat surface, we saw on the first day a good many small formations of the shape of haycocks that time we did not pay much attention to these apparently insignificant irregularities, but later on we learned to keep our eyes open, on our feet active when passing in their vicinity. On this first day southward from 81 degrees south, we noticed nothing. The going was excellent, the temperature not so bad as it had been, minus 27.4 degrees Fahrenheit, and the distance covered very creditable. 
The next day we got our first idea of the meaning of these little mounds, as the surface was cut up by crevasse after crevasse. These fissures were not particularly wide, but were bottomless as far as we could see. About noon Hansen's three leading dogs, Helg, Mylius, and Ring, fell into one of them, and remained hanging by the harnesses, and it was lucky the traces held, as the loss of these three would have been severely felt. When the rest of the team saw these three disappear, they stopped short. Fortunately they had a pronounced fear of these fissures, and always stopped when anything happened. We understood now that the haycock formations were the result of pressure, and that crevasses were always found in their neighbourhood. That day was, for the most part, thick and hazy, with a northerly wind and snow-showers from time to time. Between the showers we caught sight of lofty, very lofty, pressure ridges, three or four of them to the eastward. We estimated their distance at about six miles. Next day, March 7th, we had the same experience that Shackleton mentions on several occasions. The morning began clear and fine, with a temperature of minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit. In the course of the forenoon, a breeze sprang up from the southeast and increased to a gale during the afternoon. The temperature rose rapidly, and when we pitched our camp at three in the afternoon, it was only minus 0 0.4 degrees Fahrenheit. At our camping place that morning, we left a case of dogs' pemmican for use on the homeward journey, and marked the way to the south with splinters of board at every kilometre. Our distance that day was only twelve and a half miles. Our dogs, especially mine, looked miserable, terribly emaciated. It was clear that they could only reach eighty-two degrees south at the farthest. Even then the homeward journey would be a near thing. We decided that evening to be satisfied with reaching eighty-two degrees, and then return. During this latter part of the trip we put up our two tents, front to front, so that the openings joined. In this way we were able to send the food direct from one tent to the other, without going outside, and this was a great advantage. This circumstance led to a radical alteration in our camping system, and gave us the idea of the best five-men tent that has probably yet been seen in the polar regions. As we lay dozing that evening in our sleeping bags, thinking of everything and nothing, the idea suddenly occurred to us that if the tents were sewed together as they now stood, after the fronts had been cut away, we should get one tent that would give us far more room for five than the two separate tents as they were. The idea was followed up, and the fruit of it was the tent we used on the journey to the Pole, an ideal tent in every way. Yes, circumstances work wonders, for I suppose one need not make Providence responsible for these trifles. On March 8th we reached 82 degrees south, and it was the utmost my five dogs could manage. Indeed, as will shortly be seen, it was already too much. They were completely worn out, poor beasts. This is the only dark memory of my stay in the south, the overtaxing of these fine animals. I had asked more of them than they were capable of doing. My consolation is that I did not spare myself either. To set this sledge, weighing nearly half a ton, in motion with tired-out dogs was no child's play, 
and setting it in motion was not always the whole of it. Sometimes one had to push it forward, until one forced the dogs to move. The whip had long ago lost its terrors. When I tried to use it, they only crowded together, and got the heads as much out of the way as they could. The body did not matter so much. Many a time, too, I failed altogether to get them to go, and had to have help. Then two of us shoved the sledge forward, while the third used the whip, shouting at the same time for all he was worth. How hard and unfeeling one gets under such conditions! How one's whole nature may be changed! I am naturally fond of all animals, and try to avoid hurting them. There is none of the sportsman's instinct in me. It would never occur to me to kill an animal, rats and flies excepted, unless it was to support life. I think I can say that in normal circumstances I loved my dogs, and the feeling was undoubtedly mutual. But the circumstances we were now in were not normal. Or was it perhaps myself who was not normal? I have often thought since that such was really the case. The daily hard work, and the object I would not give up, had made me brutal. For brutal I was when I forced these five skeletons to haul that excessive load. I feel it yet when I think of Thor, a big, fine, smooth-haired dog, uttering his plaintive howls on the march, a thing one never hears a dog do while working. I did not understand what it meant, would not understand, perhaps. On he had to go, on till he dropped. When we cut him open we found that his whole chest was one large abscess. The altitude at noon gave us eighty-one degrees, fifty-four minutes and thirty seconds. And we therefore went another six miles to the south, and pitched our camp at 3.30 p.m. in eighty-two degrees south. We had latterly had a constant impression that the barrier was rising, and in the opinion of us all we ought now to have been at a height of about 1,500 feet, and a good way up the slope leading to the pole. Personally I thought the ground continued to rise to the south. It was all imagination, as our later measurements showed. We had now reached our highest latitude that autumn, and had reason to be well satisfied. We laid down 1,370 pounds here, chiefly dogs' pemmican. We did nothing that afternoon, only rested a little. The weather was brisk, clear and calm, minus 13 degrees Fahrenheit. The distance this last day was 13.5 miles. Next day we stayed where we were, built our depot and marked it. The marking was done in the same way as in 81 degrees south, with this difference, that here the pieces of packing cases held small dark blue stripes of cloth fastened to the top, which made them easier to see. We made this depot very secure, so that we could be certain it would stand bad weather in the course of the winter. I also left my sledge behind, as I saw the impossibility of getting it home with my team. Besides which, an extra sledge at this point might possibly be useful later. This depot, twelve feet high, was marked with a bamboo and a flag on the top, so that it could be seen a great way off. On March 10th we took the road from home. 
I divided my dogs between Wisting and Hansen, but they got no assistance from these bags of bones, only trouble. The other three teams had held out well. There was hardly anything wrong to be seen with Hansen's. Wisting's team was looked upon as the strongest, but his dogs had got very thin. However, they did their work well. Wisting's sled had also been overloaded. It was even heavier than mine. Johansen's animals had originally been regarded as the weakest, but they proved themselves very tough in the long run. They were no racers, but always managed to scramble along somehow. Their motto was, If we don't get there today, we'll get there tomorrow. They all came home. Our original idea was that the homeward journey should be a sort of pleasure trip, that we should sit on the sledges and take it easy. But in the circumstances this was not to be thought of. The dogs had quite enough to do with the empty sledges. The same day we reached the place where we had left a case of dogs' pemmican, and camped there, having done twenty-nine and three-quarter miles. The weather was cold and raw, temperature minus twenty-five point six degrees Fahrenheit. This weather took the last remnant of strength out of my dogs. Instead of resting at night, they lay huddled together and freezing. It was pitiful to see them. In the morning they had to be lifted up and put on their feet. They had not strength enough to raise themselves. When they had staggered on a little way and got some warmth into their bodies, they seemed to be rather better. At any rate, they could keep up with us. The following day we did twenty-four and three-quarter miles. Temperature, minus thirty-two point eight degrees Fahrenheit. On the twelfth we passed the depot in eighty-one degrees south. The big pressure ridges to the east were easily visible, and we got a good bearing, which would possibly come in useful later for fixing the position of the depot. That day we did twenty-four and three-quarter miles. Temperature, minus thirty-nine degrees Fahrenheit. March 13th began calm and fine, but by half-past ten in the morning a strong wind had sprung up from the east-south-east with thick driving snow. So as not to lose the tracks we had followed so far, we pitched our camp to wait till the storm was over. The wind howled and took hold of the tents, but could not move them. The next day it blew just as hard from the same quarter, and we decided to wait. The temperature was, as usual, with the wind in this quarter, minus 11.2 degrees Fahrenheit. The wind did not moderate till 10.30 a.m. on the 15th, when we were able to make a start. What a sight there was outside! How are we going to begin to bring order out of this chaos? The sledges were completely snowed up, whips, ski bindings and harnesses largely eaten up. It was a nice predicament. Fortunately, we were well supplied with alpine rope, and that did for the harnesses. Spare straps came in for ski bindings, but the whips were not easy to make good. Hansen, who drove first, was bound to have a fairly serviceable whip. The others did not matter so much, though it was rather awkward for them. In some way or other he provided himself with a whip that answered his purpose. I saw one of the others armed with a tent-pole, and he used it till we reached Framheim. 
At first the dogs were much afraid of this monster of a whip, but they soon found out that it was no easy matter to reach them with the pole, and then they did not care a scrap for it. At last everything seemed to be in order, and then we only had to get the dogs up and in their places. Several of them were so indifferent that they had allowed themselves to be completely snowed under, but one by one we got them out and put them on their feet. Thor, however, refused absolutely. It was impossible to get him to stand up. He simply lay and whined. There was nothing to be done but to put an end to him, and as we had no firearms, it had to be done with an axe. It was quite successful. Less would have killed him. Wisting took the carcass on his sledge to take it to the next camp, and there cut it up. The day was bitterly cold, fog and snow with a southerly breeze, temperature minus 14.8 degrees Fahrenheit. We were lucky enough to pick up our old tracks of the southern journey, and could follow them. Lurven, Wisting's best dog, fell down on the march and died on the spot. He was one of those dogs who had had to work their hardest the whole time. He never thought of shirking for a moment. He pulled and pulled until he died. All sentimental feeling had vanished long ago. Nobody thought of giving Lurvin the burial he deserved. What was left of him, skin and bones, was cut up and divided among his companions. On March 16th we advanced 17 miles. Temperature, minus 29.2 degrees Fahrenheit. Jens, one of my gallant three musketeers, had been given a ride all day on Wisting's sledge. He was too weak to walk any longer. Thor was to have been divided among his companions that evening, but, on account of the abscess in his chest, we changed our minds. He was put into an empty case and buried. During the night we were wakened by a fearful noise. The dogs were engaged in a fierce fight, and it was easy to guess from their howls that it was all about food. Wisting, who always showed himself quickest in getting out of the bag, was instantly on the spot, and then it was seen that they had dug up Thor, and were now feasting on him. It could not be said that they were hard to please in the way of food. Associations of ideas are curious things. Source Hollandaise suddenly occurred to my mind. Wisting buried the carcass again, and we had peace for the rest of the night. On the 17th it felt bitterly cold, with minus 41.8 degrees Fahrenheit, and a sharp snowstorm from the southeast. Lassesen, one of my dogs, who had been following the sledges loose, was left behind this morning at the camping place. We did not miss him till late in the day. Rasmus, one of the three musketeers, fell today. Like Lurvin, he pulled till he died. Jens was very ill, could not touch food, and was taken on Wisting's sledge. We reached our depot in 80 degrees south that evening, and were able to give the dogs a double ration. The distance covered was twenty-one and three-quarter miles. The surface about here had changed in our absence. Great, high snowways were now to be seen in all directions. On one of the cases in the depot, Bjarland had written a short message, besides which we found the signal arranged with Hassel a block of snow on the top of the depot to show that they had gone by and that all was well. 
the cold continued persistently. The following day we had minus 41.8 degrees Fahrenheit. Oller and Jens, the two survivors of the three musketeers, had to be put an end to that day. It was a shame to keep them alive any longer. And with them the three musketeers disappear from this history. They were inseparable friends, these three, all of them almost entirely black. At Fleckero, near Christian Sand, where we kept our dogs for several weeks before taking them on board, Rasmus had got loose, and was impossible to catch. He always came and slept with his two friends, unless he was being hunted. We did not succeed in catching him until a few days before we took them on board, and then he was practically wild. They were all three tied up on the bridge on board, where I was to have my team, and from that day my close acquaintance with the trio was dated. They were not very civilly disposed for the first month. I had to make my advances with a long stick, scratch them on the back. In this way I insinuated myself into their confidence, and we became very good friends. But they were a terrible power on board. Wherever these three villains showed themselves, there was always a row. They loved fighting. They were our fastest dogs. In our races with empty sledges, when we were driving around Fremheim, none of the others could beat these three. I was always sure of leaving the rest behind when I had them in my team. I had quite given up on Lassesen, who had been left behind that morning, and I was very sorry for it, as he was my strongest and most willing beast. I was glad, therefore, when he suddenly appeared again, apparently fit and well. We presumed that he had dug up Thor again and finished him. It must have been food that had revived him. From eighty degrees south, home, he did remarkably good work in Wisting's team. That day we had a curious experience, which was useful for the future. The compass on Hansen's sledge, which had always been reliability itself, suddenly began to go wrong. At any rate, it did not agree with the observations of the sun, which we fortunately had that day. We altered our course in accordance with our bearings. In the evening we took our things into the tent. The housewife, with scissors, pins and needles, etc., had lain close against the compass. No wonder it turned rebellious. On March 19th we had a breeze from the southeast and minus 45.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Rather fresh, I find noted in my diary. Not long after we had started that morning, Hansen caught sight of our old tracks. He had splendid eyesight, saw everything long before anyone else. Jarland also had good sight, but he did not come up to Hansen. The way home was now straightforward, and we could see the end of our journey. Meanwhile a gale sprang up from the southeast, which stopped us for a day. Temperature minus 29.2 degrees Fahrenheit. Next day the temperature had risen, as usual, with a southeast wind. We woke up to find it plus 15.8 degrees Fahrenheit on the morning of the 21st. That was a difference that can be felt, and not an unpleasant one. We had had more than enough of minus 40 degrees. It was curious whether that night, violent gusts of wind from the east and southeast, with intervals of dead calm, just as if they came off highland. 
On our way northward that day, we passed off lag number six, and then knew that we were fifty-three miles from Framheim. Pitched our camp that evening at thirty-seven miles from the station. We had intended to take this stretch of the way in two days, seeing how tired the dogs were, but it turned out otherwise, for we lost our old tracks during the forenoon, and in going on we came too far to the east, and high up on the ridge mentioned before. Suddenly Hansen sang out that he saw something funny in front. What it was he did not know. When that was the case, we had to apply to the one who saw even better than Hansen, and that was my glass. Up with the glass, then, the good old glass that had served me for so many years. Yes, there was certainly something curious. It must be the Bay of Wales that we were looking down into. But what were those black things moving up and down? They are our fellows hunting seals, someone suggested. And we all agreed. Yes, of course, it was so clear that there was no mistaking it. I can see a sledge, and there's another, and there's a third. We nearly had tears in our eyes to see how industrious they were. Now they're gone. No, there they are again. Strange how they bob up and down, those fellows. It proved to be a mirage. What we saw was Framheim with all of its tents. Our lads, we were sure, were just taking a comfortable midday nap, and the tears we were nearly shredding were withdrawn. Now we could survey the situation calmly. There lay Framheim. There was Cape Man's Head, and there West Cape so that we had come too fast to the east. "'Hurrah for Framheim! Half-past seven this evening!' shouted one. "'Yes, that's all we can do,' cried another, and away we went. We set our course straight for the middle of the bay. We must have got pretty high up, as we went down at a terrific pace. This was more than the forerunner could manage. He flung himself on a sledge as it went by. I had a glimpse of Hansen, who was busy making a whip-handle as I passed. The soles of his feet were then very prominent. I myself was lying on Hansen's sled, shaking with laughter. The situation was too comical. Hansen picked himself up again just as the last sledge was passing and jumped on. We all collected in a mass below the ridge, sledges and dogs mixed up together. The last part of the way was rather hard work. We now found the tracks that we had lost early in the day. One dried fish after another stuck up out of the snow, and led us straight on. We reached Framheim at seven in the evening, half an hour earlier than we had thought. It was a day's march of thirty-seven miles, not so bad for exhausted dogs. Lassesen was the only one I brought home out of my team. Odin whom I had sent home from 81 degrees south, died after arriving there. We lost altogether eight dogs on this trip. Two of Stubberud's died immediately after coming home from 81 degrees south. Probably the cold was chiefly responsible. I feel sure that with a reasonable temperature they would have come through. The three men who had come home from 81 degrees south were safe and sound, it is true that they had run short of food and matches the last day, but if the worst came to the worst, they had the dogs. 
Since their return they had shot, brought in, cut up, and stowed away fifty seals, a very good piece of work. Lindstrom had been untiring during her absence. He had put everything in splendid order. In the covered passage round the hut he had cut out shells in the snow, filling them with slices of seal meat. Here alone there were stakes enough for the whole time we should spend here. On the outer walls of the hut, which formed the other side of the passage, he had put up shelves, and there all kinds of tinned foods were stored. All was in such perfect order that one could put one's hand on what one wanted in the dark. There stood salt meat and bacon by themselves, and there were fish cakes. There you read the label on the tin of caramel pudding, and you could be sure that the rest of the caramel puddings were in the vicinity. Quite right. They they stood in a row, like a company of soldiers. O oh, Lindstrom, how long will this order last? Well, that was, of course, a question I put to myself in the strictest secrecy. Let me turn over my diary. On Thursday, July 27th, I find the following entry. The provision passage turns our days into chaotic confusion. How my mind goes back to the time when one could find what one wanted without a light of any kind. If you put out your hand to get a plum pudding and shut it again, you could be sure it was a plum pudding you had hold of. And so it was throughout Lindstrom's department. But now, good heavens, I am ashamed to put down what happened to me yesterday. I went out there in the most blissful ignorance of the state of things now prevailing. And, of course, I had no light with me for everything had its place. I put out my hand and grasped. According to my expectation, I ought to have been in possession of a packet of candles. But this experiment had failed. That which I held in my hand could not possibly be a packet of candles. It was evident from the feel that it was something of a woollen nature. I laid the object down, and had recourse to the familiar expedient of striking a match. Do you know what it was? A dirty old pair of pants. And do you want to know where I found it? Well, it was between the butter and the sweetmeats. That was mixing things up with a vengeance. But Lindstrom must not have all the blame. In this passage everyone was running backwards and forwards, early and late, and as a rule in the dark. And if they knocked something down on the way... I am not quite sure that they always stopped to pick it up again. Then he had painted the ceiling of the room white. How cosy it looked when we put our heads in that evening. He had seen us a long way off on the barrier, the rascal, and now the table was laid with all manner of dainties. But seal steaks and the smell of coffee were what attracted us, and it was no small quantity that disappeared that evening. Home. The word had a good sound, wherever it may be at sea, on land, or on the barrier. How comfortable we made ourselves at night. The first thing we did now was to dry all our reindeer-skin clothes. They were wet through. This was not to be done in a hurry. We had to stretch the garments that were to be dried on lines under the ceiling of the room, so that we could not dry very much at a time. We got everything ready, and made some improvements in our outfit for a last depot journey before the winter set in. This time the destination was eighty degrees south, with about a ton and a quarter of fresh seal meat. 
how immensely important it would be on the main journey if we could give our dogs as much seal meat as they could eat at eighty degrees south we all saw the importance of this and were eager to carry it out we set to work once more at the outfit the last trip had taught us much that was new thus prestude and johansen had come to the conclusion that a double sleeping-bag was preferable to two single ones i will not enter upon the discussion that naturally arose on this point the double bag has many advantages and so has the single bag let it therefore remain a matter of taste these two were however the only ones who made this alteration hansen and wisting were busy carrying out the new idea for the tents and it was not long before they had finished these tents are as much like a snow hut in form as they can be instead of being entirely round they have a more oblong form but there is no flat side and the wind has no point of attack our personal outfit also underwent some improvements the bay of wales the inner part of it from man's head to west cape was now entirely frozen over but outside the sea lay immense and dark our house was now completely covered with snow most of this was lindstrom's work the blizzard had not helped him much this covering with snow has a great deal to do with keeping the hut snug and warm our dogs a hundred and seven in number mostly looked like pigs getting ready for christmas even the famished ones that made the last trip are beginning to recover it is an extraordinary thing how quickly such an animal can put on flesh it was interesting to watch the homecoming of the dogs from the last trip they showed no sign of surprise when we came into camp they might have been there all the time it is true they were rather more hungry than the rest the meeting between lassison and fix was comic these two were inseparable friends the first name was boss and the other obeyed him blindly on the last trip i had left fix at home as he did not give me the impression of being quite up to the work he had therefore put on a lot of flesh big eater as he was i stood and watched their meeting with intense curiosity would not fix take advantage of the occasion to assume the position of boss in such a mass of dogs it took some little time before they came across each other then it was quite touching fix ran straight up to the other began to lick him and showed every sign of the greatest affection and joy at seeing him again lassison on his part took it all with a very superior air as befits a boss without further ceremony he rolled his fat friend in the snow and stood over him for a while no doubt to let him know that he was still absolute master beyond dispute poor fix he looked quite crestfallen but this did not last long he soon avenged himself on the other knowing that he could tackle him with safety in order to give a picture of our life as it was at this time i will quote a day from my diary march twenty fifth saturday beautiful mild weather plus six point eight degrees fahrenheit all day very light breeze from the southeast our seal hunters the party that came home from eighty one degrees south were out this morning and brought back three seals this makes sixty two seals altogether 
since their return on March 11th. We have now quite enough fresh meat both for ourselves and for all our dogs. We get to like seal steak more and more every day. We should all be glad to eat it at every meal, but we think it's safer to make a little variety. For breakfast, eight o'clock, we now have regularly hot cakes with jam, and Lindstrom knows how to prepare them in a way that could not be surpassed in the best American houses. In addition, we have bread, butter, cheese, and coffee. For dinner, we mostly have seal meat. We introduced rather more tinned meat into the menu in the course of the winter. And sweets in the form of tinned Californian fruit, tarts, and tinned puddings. For supper, seal steak with whole-berry jam, cheese, bread, butter, and coffee. Every Saturday evening, a glass of toddy and a cigar. I must frankly confess that I have never lived so well, and the consequence is that we are all in the best of health, and I feel certain that the whole enterprise will be crowned with success. It is strange indeed here to go outside in the evening and see the cosy warm lamplight through the window of our little snow-covered hut, and to feel that this is our snug, comfortable home on the formidable and dreaded barrier. All our little puppies, as round as Christmas pigs, are wandering about outside, and at night they lie in crowds about the door. They never take shelter under a roof at night. They must be hardy beasts. Some of them are so fat that they waddle just like geese. The Aurora Australis was seen for the first time on the evening of March 28th. It was composed of shafts and bends, and extended from the southwest to the northeast through the zenith. The light was pale green and red. We see many fine sunsets here, unique in the splendor of their color. No doubt the surroundings in this fairyland of blue and white do much to increase their beauty. The departure of the last depot journey was fixed for Friday, March 31st. A few days before, the seal-hunting party went out on the ice and shot six seals for the depot. They were cleaned, and all superfluous parts removed, so that they should not be too heavy. The weight of these six seals was then estimated at about 2,400 pounds. On March 31st at 10 a.m., the last depot party started. It consisted of seven men, six sledges, and 36 dogs. I did not go myself this time. They had the most brilliant weather to begin their journey, dead, calm, and brilliantly clear. At seven o'clock that morning, when I came out of the hut, I saw a sight so beautiful that I shall never forget it. The whole surroundings of the station lay in deep, dark shadow, in lee of the ridge to the east. But the sun's rays reached over the barrier farther to the north, and there the barrier lay, golden-red, bathed in the morning sun. It glittered and shone, red and gold, against the jagged row of mighty masses of ice that bounds our barrier to the north. A spirit of peace breathed over all, but from Framheim the smoke ascended quietly into the air, and proclaimed that the spell of thousands of years was broken. The sledges were heavily loaded when they went southward, I saw them slowly disappear over the ridge by the starting-place. 
It was a quiet time that followed after all the work and hurry of preparation. Not that we two who stayed at home sat still doing nothing. We made good use of the time. The first thing to be done was to put our meteorological station in order. On April 1st all the instruments were in use. In the kitchen were hung over two mercury barometers, four aneroids, barograph, thermograph, and one thermometer. They were placed in a well-protected corner, farthest from the stove. We had no house as yet for our outside instruments, but the sub-director went to work to prepare one as quickly as possible, and so nimble were his hands that when the depot party returned, there was the finest instrument screen standing ready on the hill, painted white so that it shone a long way off. The wind vane was a work of art, constructed by our able engineer, Sundbeck. No factory could have sounded a more handsome or tasteful one. In the instrument screen, we had a thermograph, hygrometer, and thermometers. Observations were made at 8 a.m., 2 p.m., and 8 p.m. When I was at home, I took them, and when I was away, it was Lindstrom's work. On the night before April 11th, something or other fell down in the kitchen. According to Lindstrom, a sure sign that the travellers might be expected home that day. And sure enough, at noon we caught sight of them up at the starting place. They came across at such a pace that the snow was scattered all around them, and in an hour's time we had them back. They had much to tell us. In the first place, that everything had been duly taken to the depot in eighty degrees south. Then they surprised me with an account of a fearfully crevassed piece of surface that they had come upon, forty-six and a half miles from the station, where they had lost two dogs. This was very strange. We had now traversed this stretch of surface four times, without being particularly troubled with anything of this sort, and then, all of a sudden, when they thought the whole surface was as solid as a rock, they found themselves in danger of coming to grief altogether. In thick weather they had gone too far to the west. Then, instead of arriving at the ridge as they had done before, they came down on to the valley, and there found a surface so dangerous that they nearly had a catastrophe. It was a precisely similar piece of surface to that already mentioned to the south of 81 degrees south but full of small hummocks everywhere. The ground was apparently solid enough, and this was just the most dangerous thing about it. But, as they were crossing it, large pieces of the surface fell away just in rear of them, disclosing bottomless crevices, big enough to swallow up everything, man, dogs, and sledges. With some difficulty they got out of this ugly place by steering to the east. Now we knew of it, and we should certainly be very careful not to come that way again. In spite of this, however, we afterwards had an even more serious encounter with this nasty trap. One dog had also been left behind on the way. It had a wound on one of its feet, and could not be harnessed in the sledge. It had been let loose a few miles to the north of the depot, doubtless with the idea that it would follow the sledges. But the dog seemed to have taken another view of the matter, and was never seen again. There were some who thought that the dog had probably returned to the depot, and was now passing its days in ease and luxury 
among the laboriously transported seals' carcasses. I must confess that this idea was not very attractive to me. There was indeed a possibility that such a thing had happened, and that the greater part of our seal-meat might be missing when we wanted it. But our fears proved groundless. Cook, that was the name of the dog, we had a peary as well, of course, was gone forever. The improved outfit was in every way successful. Praises of the new tent were heard on every hand. And Prestrud and Johansen were in the seventh heaven over their double sleeping-bag. I fancy the others were very well satisfied with their single ones. And with this, the most important part of the autumn's work came to an end. The foundation was solidly laid. Now we had only to raise the edifice. Let us briefly sum up the work accomplished between January 14th and April 11th. The complete erection of the station, with accommodation for nine men for several years, provision of fresh meat for nine men, and a hundred and fifteen dogs for half a year. The weight of the seals killed amounted to about sixty tons, and finally the distribution of three tons of supplies in depots in latitudes eighty degrees, eighty-one degrees, and eighty-two degrees south. The depot in eighty degrees south contained seals' meat, dogs' pemmican, biscuits, butter, milk powder, chocolate, matches, and paraffin, besides a quantity of outfit. The total weight of this depot was four thousand two hundred pounds. In eighty-one degrees south, half a ton of dogs' pemmican. In eighty-two degrees south. Pemmican, both for men and dogs, biscuits, milk powder, chocolate, and paraffin, besides a quantity of outfit. The weight of this depot amounted to one thousand three hundred and sixty six pounds. End of section fourteen. End of chapter six.